Hey, look at somebody and say, it's good to see you. Hey, we're so glad that you're here. Welcome to Crossroads Church. My name's Sam. I have the great privilege of being the lead pastor here at Crossroads. And what that means is every single week, I try to tell the greatest story ever told. Now, not because I'm some great communicator or it's even my story, but I believe this story is a story about Jesus, and Jesus is the greatest person to ever walk the face of the planet. I actually believe he's more than just a person. I believe he's God in the flesh. So if you've ever asked the question, what is God like? You don't have to look any further than the person of Jesus. And we believe the Bible is the story about Jesus. We say this around here. We say it's all about Jesus. We wrote it on the wall if you need some help. And what that means is you're going to need a Bible to follow along. And so if you've got your Bible, one of our ushers will get one to you. You can just slip up your hand. And if you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. We pray that you read it every single day because every time you do, you get to meet with Jesus. Amen? <clears throat> hey, I want you to turn in your Bible to the Gospel of John. And I'm going to do my best this morning. Full disclosure, I took my kiddo snowboarding this past week and the cold air has gotten to my throat. And uh, so uh, I'm going to uh, need to sip on water and coffee as you do. So don't judge me because you have your coffee where you're at. And uh, I'm going to keep mine with me today. And so, uh, hey, I want you to turn to John 17. <clears throat> but in order to save my voice uh, for the day. I got three services today plus vision night tonight. And so be praying for me tonight as I'm going to do a lot of damage to my vocal cords. And uh, so I talked to us about where we're standing and we're going to read over the next series this entirety of this chapter. But we are going to, uh, I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to read, but I'm not going to read the entirety of it. So once you stand with me and I'm going to read this first part. We're going to catch up from where uh, last week um, I was unable to get to all of the points that we dealt with. And I'll, for those of you who weren't here last week, I'll kind of catch you up from there. John 17 verse 1 says this, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all Flesh, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to do what? To give eternal life to whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you are the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You can be seated. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for who you are and who you are to us. I ask for your grace today. I pray that you help my voice. I pray uh, that as we all uh, in this body of flesh deal with ailments and sickness, and we will until we are, receive a glorified body with you as we're moving towards um, life eternal with you. As we age, as we get older, as we face sickness, as we face disease, uh, we all know and hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we too will not have to deal with these things. That too, ultimately, um, as we look at our current situations, we're able to see that the whole earth is groaning and travailing and waiting like a woman in childbirth, waiting till we see you face to face. And we'll have joy, and we'll have peace, and we'll have healing, and our hope will be assured. And we thank you for everything you've 
you've done and yet to do. We thank you for our time together and let everything we say and do bring glory to you and good to this valley. And everyone said, Amen. So last week we talked about uh, the first part of John 17, and we talked about this being the Lord's Prayer. Some of us may, when we say the Lord's Prayer, and depending on our upbringing, uh, if I were to say to you, hey, what is the Lord's Prayer? You may start and say, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. How many of you have known that to be the Lord's Prayer? Right? Uh, now, that is ultimately, if you bring me out down just a tad, um, ultimately, that is the, the Lord Jesus teaching us about prayer. Uh, but this is indeed the Lord's prayer, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is his prayer for us. And so uh, as many of us, we have, uh, we have prayers and prayers seem to be a personal thing. Amen. And oftentimes our prayer life tend to be the most personal parts of our lives. Our desires, our wants, our needs, our fears, our anxieties. Uh, we come to our limitations. We come to the end of our rope, so to speak. And oftentimes, that is when we begin to pray. Now, now let me encourage you. Don't allow the end of your rope. Don't allow the end of your limitations. What if you started at the start of uh, your rope <laughs> and, and, and the start of your limitations? What if you invited through prayer, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the things that you're a part of early on. Amen. Three of you. Amen. <laughs> what if we started there? Because here's, here's the belief <clears throat> is that sometimes what gets uh, uh, taught or what we kind of infer from that is that we only pray in times of weakness. We only pray for when we are in times of limitations. Let me say that God's heart is to talk with you as a father. How many of you love when your kids jump up in your lap and they begin to talk to you? Right? I, I, my, my third boy, Zane, uh, it's interesting because he's, uh, and maybe, how many of you firstborns in here? <laughs> I don't want to talk to you. Uh, how, <clears throat> how many of you, how many of you second babies, third babies? Any of you? There's my people. Uh, man, all those privileged firstborns. And, uh, and, and right? Uh, and yet, uh, what you notice about the firstborn is the firstborn tends to be uh, more comfortable with adults because that's how the life starts, right? You're noticing that they kind of get a leg up. They're negotiating with the adults. And then, then the, the kids come around, the younger ones come around, and they start shunning them. They're like, I'm rolling with these big people, you know? And, uh, and so my kids kind of have that to where uh, my first is really good with adults, <clears throat> And uh, as we go down, my, my son Zane, who's four years old, who's a bit of a charger. I mean, he is a beast. Like, you should have seen him four years old. He just jumps on his snowboard, and he starts hopping it around, and there he goes, right? Like, but then he'll come back, and if an adult talks to him, his thumb goes in his mouth, and he's like, I'm a baby, right? Like, <laughs> like, like he's like boss baby. Like, when everyone leaves... He's like running the kids. He's like, all right, so they're gone now. And you'll, you'll overhear him talking to all the other kids. And you're like, he speaks? Like, I'm his dad. I've known him for four years. First time I've ever heard him talk, right? Like, he's in the other room. And I'm like, hey, Zane. And he's like, 
what was that? You know, like, ah, like no, quit the baby talk. Like, what are you doing? But, but it melts me the moment that my son Zane <clears throat> runs up into my lap and I can actually go, okay, bud, quit the baby talk. And, and sometimes the heart for me is that the only time he actually talks to me is when he needs something. <clears throat> you see what I did there, right? Uh, sometimes the only time I hear him talk, but my desire is to interact with him. My desire is to have relationship with him, even in the moments where he doesn't need me or he's not hurt. Do you know this is the desire of your father who is in heaven? Not just to hear from you in the moments when you stub your toe and you, you, you skin your knee. Uh, the moments in life when you're anxious and you're afraid. He longs to have relationship with you. He actually set out a plan from the beginning of time to bridge the gap that sin put between us and the Father. This, this gap of sin, he set out a plan of redemption that he might have relationship with us. This has been the plan since the beginning. And so here's this prayer, and this prayer is from Jesus, who is, uh, is not weak. He's strong. Amen? <clears throat> we, could, we could probably do a little better than that. Uh, he's not weak. He's strong. Amen? Amen? He's lacking nothing. This is the fullness of God dwelling in the person of Jesus bodily, and yet the, the person of Jesus the person of God in the flesh, the word become flesh. What does he do? He prays. So then what shall we do? We shall pray. We shall talk to our heavenly father, giving the desires. And sometimes what you'll find, it's like when you're in a company and you're struggling, it's really hard to, uh, to see the big picture. You're just trying to pay the bills. Amen. Right when you're a manager, when you're when you're running something, it's hard sometimes to plan for the future when you're just trying to get by, to get your head above water. But see what happens is there are moments that you can actually have desires that when you work towards health, you allow God to lift you up, to strengthen you. There are moments in your prayer life that you'll see shift from just asking for personal needs or asking uh, for uh, personal things all of a sudden your head will will come up you will see the grander picture and your conversations will then change notice how that happened with your parents notice that the times you called mom and dad uh, in need when you were young and then there's these moments now where you sit around and drink some coffee and go hey what's your plan for your life what's going on like how 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 are things going uh, what about this what about that the, the the structure of the conversation changes in health and in maturity than in weakness and immaturity and so the conversation begins to change here's the prayer of the lord jesus in strength in maturity with his head up looking out and he says father now is the time <clears throat> The hour has come, glorify your son, or in other words, carry out the plan that this is always, that has always been in place. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh. Now, here's the upside down kingdom put on display, how Jesus Christ is going to turn the whole world upside down. Last week we talked about glory. What does it mean to, to glorify something? And, then, and there's a few connotations that kind of, uh, a, a few 
parts of this that add to to this word glory and the closest thing we have in a counterfeit uh, is fame and so fame draws our attention and what happens in the world of fame and we've learned this lesson the hard way is that we think that famous people have authority because they're famous well that was pretty good preaching amen why is it that we want to hear? Why is it that uh, authority figures will, will ask famous people who have no skill, no ability in certain areas, they have nothing to do with it, but they want them to promote, they want them to uh, check off on, and if I can get a celebrity's sign off, then it has some type of authority to it. And can I tell you that this is a counterfeit, and the enemy knows it. Because glory is indeed the thing that holds all authority. And so the, uh, there is, and whether you believe it or not, there is an enemy of your soul. There is an adversary who seeks whomever he may devour. He seeks to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And he is the ruler of this world. And in this moment, uh, Jesus says, the ruler of this world is now judged but can I tell you that he's still awaiting sentencing can I tell you that Ephesians says there's the prince of the power of the air that the enemy has authority and his job is to deceive you to distract you to draw your attention away from away from what the only one worthy of your attention the only one worthy of your affection the only one worthy his name is Jesus and why does he deserve glory and honor because he's the only one willing to give and serve and by serving meaning he would suffer and die and that this cross would be his glory what an upside down view of the universe because if you're looking at the Roman cross, there is nothing glorious about it. It is a curse. It is a place where criminals are executed. This is not a place of glory. If you think of a place of prominence and glory, the cross is not the place in which you would choose. And yet, when he says, the hour has come, glorify your son, the glory that he's talking about is this cross and you may say that's foolishness that's exactly right paul will say that the jews will call this foolishness and you go man that, that's uh, uh, or that the greeks will call this foolishness and the jews will go man this is scandalous but paul says i will preach christ and him crucified and yet this is the start now this is completely counterintuitive to you and i it's counterintuitive to the disciples. They do not see this coming. This is not natural or normal. And yet, if you actually dug beyond it, if you dug down a little deeper, you actually might find that it's a little more natural than you first perceive. What I mean by that is the idea of sacrificial love and suffering for others seems to do something when someone gives something that's overtly costly 
That's, that's over the top, outlandish, cost something. It draws your attention. We talked about this even last week. Why are, why are some of the best movies and stories that we watch and love, why are they about sacrificial love? Why is it that someone suffers in order for the sake of others? Why is it that the hero will give his life for others? Because there's something in you that tells you that the gospel is truth. The gospel is life. And the gospel is the announcement that the Son of God came and gave his life in exchange for yours and ours. And yet... <clears throat> This is the place, as we talked about last week, the idea of glory or worship is this idea of being fixated on something so much so that your life will revolve around it, that your life will look to it. Now think about all the things in your life that draw your attention. Think about all the things in your life that demand your attention so much so that you will rearrange your schedule for you will you will say no to one thing in other to in, uh, 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 say no to one thing in order to say yes to something out else this is the thing you can begin to look at and begin to value and examine what you glorify and yet the scriptures are telling us that the cross of Jesus Christ is the place where all glory and honor is held. This is the place where all of the universe stands in attention and looks upon our crucified Savior. And through this, now we talked uh, even a couple weeks ago, we talked about how when we have questions in the Gospels, the epistles begin to answer those questions for us. Remember we talked about this. If you have, if you have questions when you read the Gospels, the epistles answer them. You ever read the Bible and have more questions? Okay, glad I'm in the right group, the humble group, right? <clears throat> when you read the Old Testament, what answers those questions? Specifically the... Gospels, Man, you guys are doing good, right? And so the gospel, then all of a sudden I have questions for the gospels. The epistles begin to explain those for me. And so Philippians uh, 2 begins to point this out for me. And it says this, that have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God did not consider equality with God, something to be held on to, but limited himself, humbled himself, poured himself out. Out, took on the form of a man, lived a selfless, obedient life unto death and death on a cross. And because of this, God the Father has given Jesus a name which is above every other name. Father, glorify your Son. Philippians begins to tell us how that glory is, is through the work of of the cross. Philippians says that because of Christ's sacrificial death, God the Father has glorified the Son. He's put him throughout all of humanity as the central figure, as the central point, the most famous person in human history, and it is because of the cross. It seems foolish. It seems scandalous for someone to die in place of others, to give undeserved grace and favor 
unmerited, forgiveness to convicted sinners, guilty as charged, and yet you're going to allow those debts to go free? That's why the Jews think this is scandalous. And the Greeks go, this doesn't even make sense. This is foolishness. I don't understand it. Yet, from that time on, the cross of Jesus Christ has been the central, central figure and symbol throughout human history. For the last 2,000 years, you cannot escape that the symbol of the cross went from a symbol of death, death and destruction to a symbol of life, hope, and healing. You can't escape it. You go to the beach and you look at the lifeguard stand and there is a symbol of death on the lifeguard stand. It seems to be foolishness, does it not? It's foolish. And you ever you skin your knee and get a boo-boo and go run for the first aid kit and what's the thing you see on the first aid kit? The symbol of death and a curse probably bought your wife a, a gold a, 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 a gold neck necklace and it had the symbol you're like here honey I, I want i want to give you something and if she was a lady in in in, in the uh, the the first century and you were to hand her a gold necklace with a cross on it she would think you were crazy friend well, why, why would i wear that around my neck it would be the same as today wearing uh, a, an electric chair around our neck. And somehow, somehow, even though it seems foolish, somehow, now people walk around with it. They get it tattooed on their body. Don't judge me. And, uh, and, yet, uh, and, and yet, we think it's normative we think it's acceptable. We think it's worthy of. We think we ought to give it attention. We ought to think we may ponder and look to the old, rugged, brutal, beautiful cross of Jesus Christ. And yet, this is where we find glory and authority forever tied. This is the place where we find all of authority. Now, we've been talking about glory, and now we've got to shift to authority, but they are intertwined, and you already realize that, but the idea of celebrity having authority on things, famous people, wealthy people, people of status, speaking into things, thinking that they have authority, and yet people listen. Why? Because they are put in front as someone to be looked Two, and yet the cross of Jesus Christ is the place where you and I draw our attention to. And this is the place where all authority is found. The next part of this passage, John 17 says, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Now notice that in Philippians, the passage where he says that has given Jesus a name which is above every other name. It goes on to say that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And what's that next line? To the praise of God the Father. He says, glorify the Son that the Son may glorify you. That by Christ submitting to this plan and going out and allow himself to endure the cross, it is to the praise of God the Father. 
Then he goes on and says, since you have given him authority over all flesh, authority over all flesh. The next part is tied to it, to give eternal life to him to whom you have given. So let's think about this authority piece. What is authority? And what are the levels of authority? And like, why do I even look to certain authority figures? What what when I think about authority in my life, what am I appealing to and why do I desire authority? Well, uh, to give you a uh, mucked up version of C.S. Lewis's uh, the idea of the law of right and wrong, which gives us insight into the meaning of the universe. If you were to listen to people talk, you may hear some things uh, like this. Uh, How would you like it if I treated you the same way you treated me? You ever said that to somebody? Well, how would you like it if I did that to you, right? Or or if you go, uh, hey, wait a second. I was sitting there first. You took my seat. That's my seat or hey give me uh, give me a bit of your coffee uh, i gave you some coffee right none of you have ever offered me coffee but anyways uh you sit there and drink your coffee anyways he says uh, maybe someone says hey give me a bit of your orange i gave you uh, some of mine And all of a sudden, you realize that in people's normal conversations, there's some type of standard that they are appealing to. There's some type of moral code. Now, the ancients would call this the law of nature. We've moved on from the law of nature, and we now think the law of nature is gravity and the laws of physics. But the early Stoics and philosophers considered that there was a law of nature, and what they meant was there was a law of human nature, which meant there was a law of human decency. And that you realized together that you would go, hey, how would you like it if I did the same thing to you. Now, if someone that you're uh, quarreling with, and this is an outdated term that we don't use anymore, but if you are quarreling with someone, the idea is that you are appealing to them that they did something outside of the standard that you two have agreed upon, even though it might be an unspoken agreement that this is right and this is wrong. And we say this all the time, although we don't have laws for everything that we consider to be wrong or right, there's some things about human decency that we look at and we go, they ought not do that. And specifically, you ought not do that to me, right? And so then we are appealing to some type of standard. When someone's quarreling with one another, what they are doing is they're trying to suggest that what they did is not outside of the standard. They're not saying that there's no standard. They just have a list of excuse of why they are exempt from that standard in that moment. Well, you know, it's because it was my last orange. You, you had more oranges than I did when you gave me your orange. Right. Or, you know, uh, my back hurts and I need this seat more than you need this seat. 
Even though you got there first, uh, I need the seat. And so all of a sudden what I do is I find excuses to move myself outside of the standard. People aren't suggesting that there is no standard. You and I agree there is some type of standard and the idea is the law of human nature, the Bible would tell me that God has written his law on our hearts and that we will be without excuse because he has shown us through creation that there's a way to behave and a way of right and wrong. And maybe quickly you say something like, well, what about all these other civilizations? There's been different standards in different civilizations. Let's go, well, that's not true. Because in every civilization, although there may be some, some quite uh, different nuance to it, what will happen is that no one values, no society has valued when someone puts themselves over the sake of others. Or in other words, they are selfish. They are all about them selves and they take no one no society has ever cheered people who run away from battle and put other people into the fire no society has ever valued stealing other people's things or taking another man's wife, even if his culture means that he can have six wives, they still believe you shouldn't take the other guy's wife, right? And yet still there's some type of standard and all of these societies have celebrated the same things and condemned the same Things, Or in other words, there's a law of human nature that tells me this is right and this is wrong. Because if there is no right or wrong, C.S. Lewis uh, gave this talk in 1941. There's some big things happening in 1941. And yet, he says, then there's nothing we can say about the war. There's nothing we can say to Germany. If their sense of right and wrong outside of the standard is they believe that they are doing what they desire or what they perceive is right, because ultimately, this right and wrong, this standard, must be set by an authority that is outside of the game in which is being played. It's why the worst thing you'd happen is refereeing your own game. Call your own fouls. That's why your pastor's always getting in a fight. Right? Right? That's why we have referees in games. We have authority figures outside of human nature. There's an authority outside by which we appeal where we can say that Putin should not invade the Ukraine. But unless there is a standard, unless there is right and wrong, what you say about leaders, what you say about war, what you say about political figures has no bearing unless there is a standard of right and wrong unless there is an authority outside of human flesh that decides what is the standard. Are you with me? 
And so, but here's the reality, is that all of us, whether it's three weeks from now, a month from now, or dare I say today, is that all of us have broken this standard. The standard by which we think we should treat others. Or in other words, the standard by which we think others should treat us. And yet, let's be honest, that we often do not keep the standard by which we have a list of excuses for breaking our word, a list of excuses for why we didn't do what we said we were going to do, or why uh, with, we said in such and such place we're going to do this and I'll be there and we forgot to do it completely. And yet, the person who says there's no standard will quickly, if you break a promise to them, if you do something to them, they will cry very quickly. That's not fair. That's not right. By whose authority? So then you and I have to wrestle with the idea of authority. Who has authority? And here's what this passage says. That Jesus has authority over all flesh. Go ahead and touch your face. Touch your hands. Anybody not flesh in here today? Right? Flesh. All flesh. He has authority. And then where does he point to? Authority to give eternal life to all. See, here's, here, here's the, the problem with authority is counterfeit authority can come in and try to distract you from who's really in charge. So this passage where they're saying, and this is where the disciples are going to get lost because their king, their ruler, their hero is going to be crucified on the glorious, brutal, beautiful cross. But they won't see it's beautiful until day three. <clears throat> and oftentimes you and I are kind of in that limbo. We're in that, we're, we're in that here and not yet. We're in that moment of Christ has promised that he will return and redeem all things. But we're in this moment, much like the disciples were from Friday to Sunday, waiting to see our king. And yet sometimes this world is brutal. And I have to remind myself of who's in charge, that my hope is not misplaced, but my hope is in the right place. Then I won't be disappointed. Because I know that what happens in the end, although sorrow may last for the night, joy comes in the morning. In this passage right before this, he says, he will give you joy that no one will be able to take from you. What is this type of joy? And the, the enemy's distraction to try to make you think that someone else is in charge. I started thinking about this years ago, and I, as we're younger, and I think this is the maturity in, in Christ is understanding who's in charge. This is something I've been wrestling with for, um, for many years now. And, and as someone who <clears throat> always had something to do of questioning authority, how many of you are those types? Right? But then at times, uh, I... I I would find myself not understanding who is in charge of certain situations and I would just cower 
in whatever authority that they would put forward. Let me, let me give you an example and uh, how I learned, learned a couple things uh, early on. And you learn this. Um, how many of you ever had the IRS call you? Let me give you some tips. They don't call you, okay? All right? <laughs> hey, Joe, this is my story, right? Uh, so before I get to that story, I started wrestling with this years ago. Uh, many of you have uh, heard my infamous concrete story, and you'll probably hear it again on Easter, but anyways. Uh, and the guy that I, I worked when I was a youth pastor, I was working for this construction company, and um, he... Um, he did uh, sidewalk a sidewalk remodel in in Fort uh, near Fort Knox, Kentucky, in Radcliffe, Kentucky is the town outside of Fort Knox. Um, much like uh, a community like Lompoc, just outside of a, a military base, and um, he is a, a an engineer, and he had kind of left a, a, a big time corporate job to kind of spend more time with his family. So he started this little construction company, got these bids for the city to do. <clears throat> to do uh, these new uh, sidewalks throughout the city. And uh, Doug Spainhauer was his name, and he taught me a lot. Uh, he, he was a, a guy, even young, taught me about organ, organizational leadership. Even how I set up my office, Doug Spainhauer taught me about not sitting behind my desk. And so if you walk into my office, uh, I'm never able to sit behind my desk and meet with somebody in a position of authority. I move out from behind my desk and I sit in a circle uh, along with others and put myself uh, not just pastor, but a friend and a confidant and someone that we're working things out together. And so Doug Spainhauer taught me that. And, uh, and, and, and then I, I saw him one day and he would, uh, he would kind of give me some more philosophical ideas about these things. But then I saw it put to practice as, um, one day, um, I, he realized that some other guys who were doing smaller jobs in the city had come and taken uh, our road cones that he had rented. And so all throughout the city, there were road cones that, that Doug had rented and put in the different spots where we would be forming up the concrete and putting the concrete there. And, and um, these, these guys, some pretty, pretty rough and tough characters, uh, like my man, my bouncer in the back, uh, and, uh, and pretty intimidating guys. And, uh, so that morning Doug saw his cones back over on their job. And you know what he didn't do? He didn't ask for permission to go get his cones and bring them back to our job. This didn't sit well with those, uh, men and, uh, and they came over to our job. And they got real vocal with Doug. And he said, hey, those are ours. And he goes, no, they're not. I have a receipt for them. We rented them. They have this mark on them. They're our cones. And they go, no, 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 we have those cones. Now, here's the problem. Now we're looking for who's going to settle this. And what, who has authority to decide whose cones they are. And I'm just watching this. I'm like, and, and in my heart, and like some of you, in that moment, like, I think we should just give them the cones because I think it's going to go bad for us, right? Like, there might be more of us, but they're like two of us, you know? And, uh, and, and then they realize that Doug's not just going to cower because he understands his authority. He understands what is right. He understands what's supposed to be. 
So then they go get the civil engineer. Now here's what was interesting. The civil engineer, who's the city engineer, who's in charge of all of these projects, he's hired both of these crews. And you know what he comes in? He comes in and tells Doug to give those guys the cones. You're like, what? He goes, Doug, you need, and Doug goes, no, these are my cones. I'm looking at him. He didn't raise his voice. Why? He was confident. He knew those were his cones. And he knew they had no right or authority to take those cones. You're going to see how this wraps up in just a moment. And yet he just continues with a soft voice. He goes, no, unless you have a court order, unless a police officer, what he's saying is someone out outside of your authority, outside of your authority, outside of your authority, unless one of those people come because I have a receipt because I know what's been paid for. Oh, this is going to get good, isn't it? Then I know what is mine and you can't take it. Here's the reality is the enemy will try to come and he'll say, no, no, no. Those are mine. You're mine. He'll come in and, and try to convince you that punishment is coming. Well, I'll go get the, I'll go get the authority. He'll masquerade himself as an authority figure in charge of you. He'll use the leaders of this world. He'll use shame. He'll use guilt. He'll use counterfeit fame. But you have to remind yourself that all glory has been given to the Son in order that we may know the Father because he has paid for you. And you are his and he is ours and he is given because he's been given authority and he's paid for it he has the authority to give eternal life what is eternal life he defines it and this is eternal life verse 3 that they know you are the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent knowing Christ knowing See, Doug knew what was right. Doug knew the rental company. Doug knew that he had a receipt. Doug knew that his authority lasted beyond this conversation. What is eternal life? It's the fact that you have in your hands a receipt that you've been bought and paid for. And eternal life is knowing Jesus Christ, who is the door that leads to life beyond life. Life that death can't stop. And eternal life, life that death can't touch, is knowing Christ who overcame death. That you're no longer judged by the law of the creation all the things you know to do right and you didn't do. Now you're judged in light of the cross. The place where the standard, the place where Christ took on our shame, took on our sin, kept the standard, lived a selfless, obedient. That word in Philippians, this selfless, obedient. Remember what he talked about? 
The selfish life is the life that all civilizations have condemned. And yet what does Christ do? He lives a selfless life, an obedient life, meaning that he, unlike us, when we know to do right, we do it not. The Bible says that's where sin is. And yet he obeys and lives a selfless, obedient life. And this obedient life took him to a place of the cross. And the cross is the place where the Bible says he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Why? He has the authority to do so. Why? He paid for it. He has the authority to keep you and sustain you. He has the authority to preserve you. And to make himself known to you. That you and I might climb up in his lap and have conversations with the creator of the universe whom we get to call, call Abba Father. This is good news. This is the gospel. The hour has come. Father, glorify the Son that the Son may glorify you. For you have given him all authority over all flesh. He has the authority. He's outside of every authority of this world. And here's our hope. When the enemy tries to tell you that he's not in charge, remind him you have a receipt. Remind him that whether in life or death, there is no fear for to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Because we know that Christ is the doorway. And there's more than what meets the eye here, friends. So then when the world is chaotic, when fear is all around, the enemy only plays shadow games, friends. He puffs his chest out and he tries to show you his authority either through the fear of death or death itself. But if you have eternal life, what is there to be afraid of? So then, let the joy of the Lord be your strength. Rejoice in the Lord always, friends. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. But with prayer and petition, make your requests known. Pray when you have in your weakness and in your strength, make your requests known for the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's praiseworthy, if there's anything honorable, anything excellent, think on these things. And those things describe Jesus perfectly. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, <clears throat> I thank you for helping me today. I thank you for you giving the sermon. I thank you for showing your authority in what you paid for and that you've paid for us and that we submit to your authority and your authority alone and your authority 
is the self-giving, sacrificial love of God. Let that be shed abroad in our hearts. Let the love of God constrain us, challenge us, mold us, shape us, move us towards others. And when we know to do right, let us do it. For we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. And let everything we say and do bring glory to God and good to this valley. And everybody said, amen. Will you give Jesus one more hand clap of praise?